There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Nobody is above mental health issues. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a psychologist, a journalist. Nobody is above mental health issues. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sullivan. Good women, great chat. I am thrilled today at Short Black to welcome clinical neuropsychologist Dr. Hannah Coral from Noble Psych, and she's written a book called How to Break Up with Friends. Welcome to Short Black, Hannah. Thanks for having me, Sandra. It's so nice to be here. You are a clinical neuropsychologist with a master's in clinical neuropsychology. What's neuropsychology? (laughs) So neuropsychology is um, a different type of psychology. Traditional psychology is when you have, you know, the therapy on anxiety and depression and you might see your psychologist for several sessions, whereas neuropsychology is much more sort of medical-based. So we're the people who you refer to if there's something going wrong in your thinking and your memory. And, we, and the doctors want to know what's going on with this person's brain. So what parts of their brain are working and what parts aren't working. So it's like the neurological pathways to behaviour. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, almost like IQ testing, if you've heard of IQ testing. So we test the different parts of your brain and we can tell you what parts are working well and what parts need a bit more help. So we would diagnose things like dementia or learning disabilities, ADHD, or autism, all sorts of things that affect why your brain works well and why your brain doesn't work so well. What are some of the early warning signs when your brain's not working so well? I mean, for me, sometimes it could just be, you know, I just can't remember things. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of benign signs that people get very worried about. We, we can often see the worried well. So people who are just worried about, I'm forgetting things, I'm forgetting people's names, I'm forgetting where I put my keys. There's very normal errors of capture where you have normal memory failings. So it's normal to forget people's names. It's normal to forget what you ate for lunch a month ago. It's normal to misplace your keys. But I suppose when things start to get an indicator that it's getting too concerning or there's you might need to go and see your GP is when it's interfering with your functioning. So it's interfering with your ability to drive your car, do your shopping, do your normal activities of daily living like cooking and cleaning. And when family members are starting to say they're a bit concerned about your thinking or your memory. So the good news is if you're worried about your thinking and your memory, that's a pretty good sign that you might be okay because if you have a memory problem, you tend to forget that you have a memory problem. (laughs) I'm feeling better already. (laughs) Now, a key part of this book is about, you know, your relationships really with your close circle. I've heard for years you really only ever need about four or five friends. Mm. They're the ones that you develop those deep, long-term you know, sort of profound relationships in your life. You also claim you really only need five close friends at all. Mm, yeah. You find that across the board? Because, you know, when you're a teenager, you're just going for mass visibility. There's sort of this biological need to build your tribe and make sure that you, you're liked. Yeah. And then as you get a bit older, you don't need to connect with as many people and you're really just 
stick to the ones you really like, who you get and they get you. Yeah, you prune your tribe. Yeah, that's exactly right. I wish I could take credit for the number five. The five number is actually the, the Dunbar number, which is by um, a professor in sociology and, and neurology who looked into how many friends or how many really intimate and close relationships can your brain actually handle? Because your brain is only so big, right? We only have so much cognitive real estate and space in our head. And if you think about your calendar even, how much time in your day do you have for talking on the phone, texting people, going for lunch dates and doing your Skype calls with your mates? We only have so much time in the day and we only have so much real estate in our brain. And the theory is very, very, very close relationships. I'm talking the person who, you know, you don't mind walking in on you while you're having a shower or the people who are super close, you speak to them every single day, your partner, your mum, your children. The research is telling us we can only hold about five of these really super intimate close relationships at any given time. And then the less intimate the relationship, the more people you can handle on that level. So you might be able to handle, you know, 15 closer friends that aren't quite as close. You don't see them every day. Maybe you see them once a fortnight. And then about 50 even less close friends you might see monthly or every other month and so on and so forth. And people can actually fluctuate up and down those levels of intimacy. So at some points in your life, you might have certain family members or certain friends who are really close. Your, five, your top five might be all girlfriends when you're quite young. And then as you get older and you focus on your business and you have a family and you shift and change your identity, those positions might be taken up by your husband your children, very, very close work partners, for example. So you're quite right. You do change over time and it's perfectly normal to fluctuate over time. I think the key message, Sandra, is just this idea of not beating yourself up. Do not beat yourself up if you feel like you don't have oodles and oodles of friends. You don't need oodles of friends to reap the positive effects of friendship. You just need a few really good quality friends to really get those neurological benefits of excellent friendship. I'm reassured to know that family are included in that initial circle of four or five because you're right once you include you know your husband and children and you know for me I've got a twin sister and a, and a mother and brothers and once I get through them and my husband you know it doesn't take long for the five to be stitched up but I wonder about navigating because there's an emotional toll as you move people in and out of those circles. And managing your emotions through that, because sometimes you feel guilty that I just can't maintain that friendship like I used to. Yes, I think, um, you know, you put the nail on the head there. So what you're referring to is, is what we call in the literature didactic withdrawals. And that's a fancy word for the energy shifts that you get when your identity changes over the course of your life. So when you were in your early 20s, it might have been Sandra, the superstar socialite at uni. <laughs> no, but yeah. Go on, go on. I'm liking this. I think you're in my inner circle. Yeah. <laughs> Going to the pub and, you know, having the daiquiris at the bar and shooting pool and, and having those, those close relationships with the girlfriends. And then as you get a little older, your didactic energy, your, the energy that makes you the person that you are, the energy that goes into your identity shifts and changes based on your priorities. And that might be the Sandra who then created her own business and created her own professional identity. And all of that energy that went into the university courses and the professional development and developing those skills and expertise, because of course, you know, how many late nights were there, how many weekends working were there, how many early mornings were there, and all of the energy and resources that that took. 
And then, of course, moving into potentially getting married and having children, which, again, is another shift into motherhood and um, being a partner. And all of those demand a huge amount of your energy, too. Energy is finite. We don't have infinite, infinite amounts of energy. And so where you're taking that energy from other identity parts of yourself, you're, you're moving it from one part of your old identity into your new identity, which can be exhausting. So it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable for you to feel tired and for you to need to prune some of your tribe and hone in some of your tribe. And the literature tells us over time, it's actually really normal for people to have ebbs and flows in their friendship. It's perfectly normal for you to be really close with some people at some points in your life. Usually when you're, you're matching up with your identity, we're both young, we're both at uni, we're both single. And then later in life, you make friends with people who also match your identity. We're both starting our own business. We're both in the same professional career or we're both in the same marriage and we both wedded to these two, these beautiful little monsters that we're raising. Or the same stage of life. Exactly. Exactly. So I suppose the best advice is, you know, be gentle with yourself, be kind to yourself and understand that nobody wakes up in the morning, Sandra, going, whose life am I going to ruin today? You know, people don't (laughs) wake up with the intention of being mean or being unsupportive. It's just very often a byproduct of where they're at at life and in that stage of their life that I cannot for my mental health put the time and the energy and the money that I used to put into this relationship in previous years. But it's the transition that's really difficult, Hannah. Yeah. I mean, at different stages in my life, I've got people I still really adore, but they're just so draining because they just require so much attention. Yeah. And understandably for all the things they're going through, not to sound hard-hearted, But after a while, you do run out of energy. So how do you transition them gently out of your inner circle to the next circle? Give us some tips on those conversations and what's the best way to do that? I mean, I find personally I'm just less available. I often say to young journalism students, if you can't see the fence, people will always trespass. So if you can actually put your fence up, it might be not answering your phone during certain hours and just not being as available. Are they the right signals you can send to people as you are ready to transition them into another space in your life? Yeah, I love. So essentially what you might be referring to now is, you know, we're moving away from the normal shifts in friendship that we have over time to this person could actually be a little bit of a toxic friend for you because you are walking away from those interactions feeling more drained than before you went into them. And it's not actually normal for a friendship to leave you feeling worse than before you went into that that friendship or that interaction. That is an indicator that that person is sucking you dry and is taking more than they should be in the relationship. And it's not leaving you feeling good. And that's not normal for a friendship. A friendship should be supportive. A friendship should be enlivening. It should make you feel good to have um, an interaction with that person and give you a boost rather than suck you dry and leave you exhausted emotionally because you've just been the emotional crutch of this person for the last hour on the phone. Well, sometimes it just feels quite one-sided. You know, there isn't that easy exchange because there's an issue that's completely swamping their life and they can't kind of get past it. Yeah. You know, it's it's wrestling with feeling guilty Mm. having those feelings. So I think, okay, I think let's wind it back and I'll give maybe some fundamental paradigm shifts that are about to blow your mind. Okay. (laughs) And we talk about this a lot in the book. The the best lesson, the, the best piece of advice or best lesson that I can pass on and impart to you and and listeners 
is the principles of what actually makes a friend. And so many women who I encounter just have their mind blown when I say these basic, basic principles to them. I'm seated. I'm ready. Just do it. (laughs) A friendship is supposed to be, it's supposed to be reciprocal. You are supposed to, and you should expect something from a friend. And so many people, especially women, have this feeling like once a friend, always a friend. And to be a good friend means to give and give and give and expect nothing in return. To be totally altruistic, which is where we give and we don't expect to to reap any rewards from that. And we just give them all our time, all our money, all our energy, and we don't expect anything back. And that is fundamentally flawed. That idea of friendship will leave you feeling used up, taken advantage of, and completely emotionally exhausted. Part of what I do in the book is no bullshit truth bombs. And a big, big, big one is friendships are reciprocal. And you say women don't fundamentally get that. Is that sort of part of that innate oh, always giving? And Yeah, it's, it's socialization, Sandra. It's how we are socialized in society. Do not be a boat rocker. Do not be a buzzkill. Don't be a, in inverted commas, Karen. Don't be a Karen. Don't be somebody who requires support or makes complaints. Always be cool and easygoing because that's what makes a good friend, a popular friend, is someone who's cool as a cucumber and never requires anything. Too cool to care. And this type of socialising of like the high maintenance woman, the crazy woman who makes complaints because someone hasn't treated her right, that's just... That is the height of gaslighting. That is the height of gaslighting, where we tell women in society that if you complain, that if you say something wasn't right, that if you lay down the law and set some boundaries and be assertive, that you're being selfish or some kind of a a high maintenance bitch. And it's not true. It's not true. It's brainwashing and it's societal norms that we need to dismantle. And so what actually should you be getting for a friendship? And, And those things aren't crazy you know they need to buy you a yacht and matching boat shoes we're not asking for crazy things in return from our friends we're asking for very very simple basic requirements things like a friend should give you affection affection they should like being around you they shouldn't behave like a wet mop when you're around they shouldn't make you feel like they don't like hanging out with you and that you're walking on eggshells because one minute they're Jekyll and Hyde a friend should be trustworthy, someone who you can trust. Do you trust them with your, with your information or do you feel like they have an ulterior motive all the time? Do you feel like they have your best interest at heart? A friend should be supportive, somebody who supports you, who wants to know how your life is going and checks in on you know the big and the little details in life. Maybe they can't keep up with all the little details day to day, but they certainly know about the big details in your life. They know that you graduated that uni course. They know that you've, you've had a a marital breakdown. They, They keep up with what's going on in your life. Even if that's, maybe we just have the three month chat, but I want to keep up with your life. I want to be there to support you. And you know, you can call them when things get tough. And the last one is a friend should be respectful. A friend should have respect for you. And I think the respect one is the confusing one for a lot of women because you might have a friend who is affectionate, super nice, they want to cuddle you, they want to put lovely photos of the two of you on Facebook and they want to, um, you know, give you high fives and splash the cash on you every now and then. Uh, You feel like you can trust them and tell them all your secrets and they're there to listen. But fundamentally, does that friend actually have respect for you? Or do they think that they're better than you in some way? Do they think they're smarter than you? 
Do they think that they're, um, you know, more competent than you? Do they think that in some way you are beneath them in your decisions about life? So is it like sometimes you sense a scorecard? Yeah, yeah, that, that's well, yeah, well put. So if the friendship is not mutually respectful and we both feel like we're on equal levels, if one person thinks that they're better than the other person, that will fundamentally erode any interaction you have with that person because ultimately their opinions of your life choices are going to be, well, I don't think that that's good enough or in some way I think I could have done it better or you're beneath me in your life choices. And it's very hard to have equality in a friendship when one person thinks they're better than the other person. And I think this throws a lot of women off. Do the same rules apply for men as well? Because I don't see that in male friendships. There are differences between female and male friendships, but it's not in terms of what's required for a friendship, the fundamental tenets of a friendship. The tenets of a friendship, you know, a mutual respect, affection, trust and support, they're there for men and women, but the way in which men interact with their friends is very different to the way women interact with their friends. And it's not doing men any favours. So <laughs> the literature is pretty clear, you know, that the way men interact in friendships, and probably a lot of women listening can relate to this, is they engage in physical proximity. So they want to be physically close to each other. So we're both playing golf or we're both sitting at the pub and we're sitting next to each other watching the sports and having a beer, but we're not emotionally close. So women will get together just for the purposes of chatting, just to talk. We'll just talk about what's going on. Whereas men will get together and they will not talk about their emotions. They'll just be physically in the same room together, doing some kind of physical activity together. And I don't know how many times I've heard this and seen it myself. When the the, the man comes home from a night out with the boys and one of the boys has had a breakup in the group and you say, you know, how, how was how was Bill? How's he doing? And the blokes say, oh, we, di- we didn't ask him. We didn't want to embarrass him. We didn't want to talk about it. We didn't think he wanted to talk about it. And he would have brought it up if he wanted to talk about it. We just watched the game. And I think <laughs> this is a, a big problem in Australia. We have a huge epidemic of, of men's mental health in Australia. And um, 75% of the suicides in Australia are males, 75%. And that's been increasing every year, according to our ABS data. They are super scary statistics, and I have to say we see see that in the news world all the time, you know, the explosion of mental health issues. Absolutely. And it's exacerbated, of course, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But men often are just so emotionally bound up, aren't they? How do you change that? Is it in their DNA or is it a learned behaviour? Again, I think it's a social norm thing. And what I mean by social norms and socialising is the way that we're brought up. So I don't think it's in anyone's DNA for boys to pick blue and girls to pick pink. It's the way that we're raised and it's the signals that we're given from the moment that we're born to when we become an adult about how a woman and how a male is supposed to behave. And in Australia, we've done one of the world, uh, the largest studies into male friendship recently came out and said that men actually want to be more, more emotionally close in their friendship. 80% of men wanted to be more emotionally close in their friendships, but they were fearful that their friend who they opened up to would think that they were weak in some way for opening up about their emotions. So it's a little bit like men are playing this emotional chicken with one another. Who's going to go first? Who's going to open up first? And there's a real culture of teasing 
uh, with men in society. So, you know, when a man does open up about how he's feeling, a lot of other friends in the group might get uncomfortable. They might tease him and poke some fun at him. Oh, harden up, mate. Come on, take a teaspoon of concrete. And then they move the conversation along, which is effectively telling that man, let's not talk about that. We're not going to, this is making me uncomfortable and we're going to move on now. And you've probably heard the term toxic masculinity and it's kind of getting into toxic masculinity where the stoicism and this not help-seeking behaviour is causing men to feel a sense of a lack of belonging and a a sense of loneliness. Those are the two key words in the research, a lack of belonging and loneliness with our men. So while they're reluctant to open up emotionally because they're frightened and you suggest it's cultural, do they have the tools? Are they equipped to deal with that emotional conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of guys in society who are becoming, you know, if I can use the phrase, woke. (laughs) They're getting better at talking about their feelings and it's becoming more, we're becoming better as a society at pulling away the stigma of men talking about mental health, of mental health in general. But there's still a fair way to go. Most Aussie blokes don't know how to communicate how they're going and how to put that into language. And a lot of men will be quite emotionally vulnerable with women. So they'll be able to express those feelings with the women around them and their partner or girlfriend. But talking to each other about emotions is really difficult for them. And this is an ongoing issue. What advice do you give men or women who are concerned about the men in their life? Well, I think one of the best things I can say to men is if you feel that you have a friend who has gone through a tough time, like a divorce or a marital breakdown or relationship breakdown, a work crisis, just because that friend might not say, I'm struggling and I need help, don't assume that they're fine. Don't make the assumption that they're fine. Actually check in with them. And it's easier for men to talk in a a one-on-one setting where it's two friends together having a chat about their emotions rather than in a group setting where there's there's more likely to be that one friend who gets uncomfortable and who teases and makes fun and makes light of the situation. So a good way to start is one-on-one having that conversation and being the first person to be a bit vulnerable and say, you know, I'm struggling a little bit, I'm having a tough time, it's really good to have you here to talk to. And it's like I said before, having that emotional playing emotional chicken with each other. If one person's willing to go first, the other person is more likely to open up about how they're feeling. So men getting together on a one-on-one basis is helpful. And also for women trying to support their partners to be more emotionally open with their friends or to help a male friend who's struggling, maybe having that chat with your partner and saying, you know, there's a lot of men out there, the research is telling us who who want to open up about how they're feeling, but they just worry that they're going to be perceived as weak if they do. So if you actually ask them how they're doing and you let them know that it's okay to talk about it, they may actually surprise you and start talking about their feelings. And I think letting guys know know that is sometimes helpful and also taking the pressure off. You know, you don't have to have the answers. So many people feel, especially men, feel like they have to have a solution or an answer. Have you heard that cliche kind of saying, you know, when you're listening to your partner, don't give them a solution. They don't need a solution. They just want you to listen. They just want to vent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. A lot of women have this issue with their partners where the guys will jump into solution mode. Oh, have you tried this? Have you tried this? And, and the woman doesn't actually want solutions. She just wants you to listen. 
And that's the same for guys listening to other guys. They get a bit flustered and they might think, I have to find an answer. I have to give him an answer and I don't know what the answer is. You do not need to give them an answer. You just need to listen. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One of the talking points in your book is that in Australia, only about 25% of us report having a close friend that we can talk to every month. Mm. Why do we actually need friends? Yeah, that's a really interesting statistic and kind of sad, but we can flip it to be quite positive, Sandra, as well. That means 75% of us are looking for a close friend, are looking for someone to fill that place. 75% of us, which is huge. Mm. It is so valuable for your mental health to have a good quality friend. And the easiest way to put this into meaningful data is to say, well, what's the impact of a toxic friend? Number one, you will have obviously the mistrust of not being able to trust that friend, which is emotionally tough. But number two, people don't realize the biological and neurological impact of a toxic friend on your life. You might think, oh, you know, Phil's just that friend who's always calling me a bit of an idiot and and never repays the money or... Kerry's just that friend who doesn't really support me and and she kind of makes me feel a little bit undermined and um, a little bit worthless when we hang out, but I don't hang out with her too much, so it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal because it actually confuses your brain. It confuses a nerve called the polyvagal nerve, which is the um, nerve in your brain that fires and does your fight or flight response. So when there's a threat, that's the nerve that goes off. When there's a fire or a burglar, uh, it's the one that goes, you know, alert, 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 you know, there's there's a problem. So toxic friends aren't just bad for your mental health, they're bad for your physical health. Yeah, bad for your brain, bad for your biology because your, your polyvagal nerve gets confused and it starts firing willy-nilly. So it can't tell the difference between a friend and a foe because your friend is acting like an enemy to you. So it confuses your body. It floods your body with a bunch of stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And the lifelong impact of exposure to strained friendships this is just friendships. This doesn't include family or work colleagues. It's just friendships. That has been shown to have the health effects on par with obesity and smoking, chronic illness, and actually shorten your lifespan. Wow. Which is crazy. It's huge. It's huge. That's profound though, isn't it? I mean, you bristle at the thought of a toxic friend because you just know that it's an hour of your life you won't get back. <laughs> so how do you end toxic friend relationship? It's such a complex topic and you literally can write a book on the topic because there's so much to talk about (laughs) and that's why I have written a manual on how to break up with friends. But um, I think the best thing I can say, you know, without like unpacking an entire book's worth on you is don't ever do anything in the heat of the moment. 
do not ever do anything in the heat of the moment. You know, if if you're a couple of cocktails down and Kerry's just insulted your outfit and your life choices again for the, uh, the upteenth time in a row, that's yeah. not the time to, you know, declare war on Kerry. Um, really, you want to do things. The word here is integrity. Right. And, and I think that's the word that cuts through all the, the BS. When I say, when I look you in the eye and I say the word integrity, you know, what do you represent as a person? If you have integrity, you choose to do all of your actions and all of your words with a level of respect and a leg, level of courtesy where if you ever walked down the street and saw that friend, if you ever bumped into them in the future, you can hold your head up high knowing that you spoke with dignity and respect and whatever you said and did was done in such a manner that you know that you were just putting your mental health first and you didn't air any dirty laundry, you didn't get down in the mud with them, you didn't sling abusive words around, you you held yourself with a level of integrity where you can walk past them again and know that you've done the right thing and you've handled yourself in the right manner. And, and the way to do that is to not do things in the heat of the moment. In the heat of the moment, that's when we revert to our reptilian brain. That's when we go to our fight and flight brain and we might say or do things. That's when stuff flies out your mouth and you hear it later and think, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And we've all been there. You know, if you've ever kicked your foot or stubbed your toe or stepped on the Lego and you've just gone flown into a rage in that moment because of the pain and the shock and you've said a few things you've said a few choice words that you shouldn't that's you going into your your reptile brain where it's just emotions it's just a reaction and it's not those well thought out words that you would have more carefully selected had you been using your frontal lobes but Hannah sometimes isn't it just easier to kind of let something die naturally or is that just our aversion to wanting to tackle something head-on yeah. Because then the next fear in my brain is they want me to unpack why. Mm -hmm. And how do I tackle why if I don't really want to tell them the nitty gritty? So, so there's actually a lot of steps that happen before you break up with a friend. And, and part of that is a bit of behavioural analysis. So it's helping you identify when does this person disrespect you? In what conditions? When people are witnesses? Is it around members of the opposite sex? Do they put you down? Or is it when no one's around and there's no witnesses that they put you down? Is it in the work setting when they talk over you and undermine your ideas? Or is it when you're out on the town and they've had a few too many drinks and they just lose all their inhibitions and start yelling and swearing at you and ruining the night? You can actually look into when does this behaviour occur with this particular friend, number one. And number two, it's really important to communicate it's so important to communicate. I know everybody rolls their eyes when I say communication. People kind of find that a bit cringeworthy, especially women, because we, we do struggle with our assertiveness and being told that we're, to be the perfect woman, you should be submissive and you shouldn't rock the boat. So it is quite hard for us to accept the idea that you're not being confrontational. You're not detonating a confrontation bomb when you say to somebody, when you did that behavior, it made me feel sad please don't treat me like that again. It's again, it's, it's integrity, isn't it? It's saying to the person in a calm and stable voice, please don't call me an idiot. That makes me sad. I don't want you to call me an idiot again. And then saying, if they do that behavior again, okay, I've set the boundary. Now it's my job to uphold that boundary. You've just called me an idiot again. I'm going to leave. I don't want to talk about this right now. We can talk about it another time. So actually letting the person know when they've done the wrong thing by you is so important. It doesn't mean that you're being rude. It doesn't mean that you're calling them names. It's just you saying, hey, you know, when you cancelled on me last minute for our brunch day, 
It meant that my morning was wasted. Can you please not cancel on me last minute again? It's not about being hostile. It's about being honest. And you'll be surprised, Sandra, a lot of people will lift their game when they get that little slap on the wrist, you know, you need to shape up. They'll actually, they will shape up because no one's perfect. But I think underneath it all, it's people are just don't like confrontation. I guess it's worrying about where the landmines are after you open that door. You don't want to get into a tit for tat. Oh, yeah, the airing the dirty laundry, going into the minutiae detail, well, you did this and you did that, the back and forth. And and I give a few templates in the book on how to word your messages to this person. I'm a big advocate for letting things cool off and actually sending like a message the, the next day. Just because you didn't say anything in the moment doesn't mean you can't address it later on. And I think that's a pitfall a lot of women fall into is thinking, oh, I didn't say anything at the time, so I have to let it slide now. That's not true. So give me an example of what you could say in a text message to let someone know that, you know, you you do need to sort something out. Yeah. So it might be, you know, hey, I had a, a nice time at dinner or thanks for, te- thanks for taking me out at dinner on the weekend. I've been thinking through what happened and I actually didn't like how you interrupted me so many times over dinner. It really hurt my feelings. Can you please not interrupt me when we go out for dinner? you know, or, hey, thanks for thanks for taking us out for, for that vacation trip. It really hurt my feelings when you kept making jokes about me to the group and using me as the butt of the joke. It actually, it actually really hurt my feelings. Can you please not use me as the butt of the joke in the future? So saying to them, what was the behavior? How did it make you feel? And ask them not to do it again. That sets a really clear boundary. And that's a really good guideline is to you know, what to say in a text. My hesitation with putting it in a text is I will read it and reread it because, you know, the written word can be read so many different ways. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's why it's important to avoid the minutiae, to avoid getting into the tit for tat right. and stick to the facts. The facts are when you do X behaviour, it makes me feel Y emotion. Please don't do X behaviour again. So when you call me an idiot, it hurts my feelings please don't call me an idiot again. And then you've set a really clear boundary. And if that person wants to then get into the nitty gritty, well, you did this and you did that and you did this, it's really a very simple and effective line is, I can't actually talk about it right now, but I'm I'm happy to have a chat about this another time when I'm ready. Or you could even say, my mental health isn't in a place where I can have this conversation right now. I'll let you know in the future if if I can discuss it a little bit more. But I think when you send somebody a message, it gives you both the breathing room to take it in, to digest it, and to for them to curate a good response as well and to think through what they're going to respond with, not in the heat of the moment themselves. And sometimes people need a bit of cushioning where they want to say, you know, I really value our friendship and I wanted to let you know what upset me because I really value you as a friend. I hope you understand. And of course, you know, it's our job to kind of set the boundaries and then stick to the boundaries. If somebody is a toxic friend and is constantly manipulating, undermining and gaslighting you, then yeah, they might take that boundary and throw it back on you and say, well, you're just too sensitive, or you did all these things to me, or you're making a mountain out of a molehill, and in some way manipulate or gaslight you, which is another red flag. That's another red flag for you that that person might be a little bit toxic, and you need to set a boundary and potentially break up with that friend, depending on what their response is. 
And when you let go of those friends, you're actually creating room for another one to come in, aren't you? Absolutely. Another thing we talk about in the book is the mentalities that keep us staying with toxic friends and why we stay with a friend. We know that that person is toxic for us and and mean to us and like a bully to us and undermining us. So why do we stay with them? And I think one of the big, big issues is the fear of having no friends. You know, I'd rather have toxic friends than no friends. And this society that we live in, which tells us again and again and again, it's really important that you're popular and you've got to have heaps of Facebook friends and you've got to have heaps of likes on your photo and you've got to have that absolutely full chock-a-block guest list of all the people who are going to come to your event. And there's nothing more heartbreaking when you feel excluded or when you feel somebody has disregarded you. And, And your emotions, your emotional pain is processed in the same part of your brain as physical pain. So for you to be rejected, for you to have heartbreak, for you to have someone call you a name or exclude you, those things hurt just as much in your brain as if somebody had actually stabbed you in the chest. So so it's you're not imagining it. It does hurt. It really hurts. But I think the important principle is knowing this fear of toxic friends is keeping you tied to these toxic people. And when you create the space for something else to fill that part of your life, something will come and fill it. But until you have the room, until you have the free space, you're never going to fill it with a better quality friend. The fear is keeping you tied to them. I love what you're saying, but I wonder, you know, with so much mental health and anguish with young Australians at the moment, would you say exactly the same thing you just said to us to them? Or do you just need to sort of phrase it a bit differently? Because you know, we all never really grow up. I mean, we're so shaped by our journey and our experiences. And we remember being angst riddled when we were teenagers about, you know, hanging on to a friend. And, you know, you woke up when you're 40 and thought, what the hell was I thinking? That person was just a toxic friend. And we didn't have that word around then, did we? (laughs) We didn't know what to call them. We just knew they weren't good friends, but we were so desperate to hang on to them. Yeah. I think it's like realizing when you've had a really bad boyfriend and you can look back and go, oh dear God, why did I let them do that to me? And sometimes that's a benefit of wisdom. Are you seeing lots of young Australians at the moment? I mean, can you split up your gender and age group demographics with your current client base and what changes you've seen over the last, say, 24 months? It's actually really interesting. I have had all different demographics. So there's the, you know, the teenagers, the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, right up to middle age, and even older adults in their 60s who have been um, you know, responding to radio interviews and getting the book and, and talking about, oh my gosh, I've had this friend for so many years. And it seems like the same message on repeat. Longevity does not equal quality. So just because you've been friends with them for years and years and years, it doesn't mean you give them a whole pass to treat you like crap for the rest of your life. So, you know, I think for all of us, it's a really important lesson to have that self-worth where we can say, what happened to me was not okay. It's okay for me to set a standard of behavior. And it's okay for me to be alone with myself for a little while and invest in myself, reinvest that time, that energy, that money into myself and my own hobbies and not put the pressure on myself to have oodles of friends, heaps and heaps of mediocre friends, because I only really need a couple of good friends to get the benefits of quality friendship on my body and my brain and my health. 
So I think, you know, for any age group, yes, absolutely. There are people who will stay tied to toxic friends because they're afraid of having no friends. And that fear of having no friends is overwhelming and pervasive. But when you come out the other end of, you know, having broken up with a toxic friend and realize how much they actually were draining your energy, your time, your money, then you can see it's, it's hindsight's 2020, isn't it, Sandra? So you can see, wow, they were taking so much more of an effect on me than I realized. But you know, I instantly have a tremendous amount of empathy for older Australians, older generations who have lost lifelong friends. Yeah. And that grieving of not being able to find someone who just knew them, you know, like a book. And what advice do you give to older people who really struggle to make new friends because they're trying to fill a void that's almost unfillable? Yeah, that is a really interesting, the the idea of can you make friends as an older adult? Can you make friends when you're older? And, And yes, it is easier to make friends when you're younger and you're both going to the same school and there's that repetitive contact that means that we start to make friends just because we see each other every day and we've spent a long time together so we know each other well. And one of the things I often find with people who say, I can't make new friends, I'll usually say, well, what have you tried? What have you tried? What have you done? And so often the answers are nothing. I haven't tried any formal, you know, support groups or connecting groups to actually make these new friends. We're in a really great time, you know, in society where we have these amazing avenues for making new friends, like Meetup. Is a, is a great website that has all these different groups tailored to your interests. So it might be chess club, it might be watercolour, it might be um, doing salsa class. And, and for me, you know, I, I always say to, to any adult of any age group, what's your interest? What have you always wanted to do? Do you want to be a writer? Do you want to be an entrepreneur? Go and do that. Go and join a group where you do that because you want to, because you love it. And secondary to your own pursuit of your own goals will be exposure to like-minded people who you will see again and again and again and again. And that will turn into your community. That will turn into your social network of, of opportunities to get together for lunches and drinks and dinners and socials and gatherings. And friends will come through those avenues. But people who kind of sit on their hands and are saying, oh, I don't ever meet new friends. A big part of it is is them actually putting themselves out there to make those new friends in the first place. If you put yourself out there, then you will find like-minded people who also want to make friends because everyone has experienced toxic friends. And in society in Australia, we know that one in two, so every second person you see is saying that they want to make more friends. Oh, the world can be a lonely and hard place, can't it? But equally, equally, I'm always a, you know, glass half full type of gal. You're an expert in all things to do with the brain, Hannah. So how do we train our brains to stay smart and sharp as we get older? Like I love Sudoku. Oh, I love this. Okay, so the current literature is telling us the number one way of staving off things like dementia, which is a neurodegenerative disorder of your brain. So where basically the connections in your brain build up plaques and tangles and the messages can't send properly because it's like the pipes are blocked up with debris. So the number one way to keep your pipes nice and clean are to socialise and keep learning. Socialising means, you know, going out, keep seeing people, keep doing things, keep doing your Zoom calls, keep doing your group activities. 
And you know when people get put in, for example, nursing homes, that can be a turning point where the person either deteriorates or they get better or they stay the same because they're either totally isolated, they're not leaving the house, they're not seeing anybody, or they join a group of people and they join activities for people their age where they're socialising more and that's stimulating their brain and they're able to kind of get a little bit of that neuroplasticity, which is that wonderful thing that we need to keep ourselves resistant to things like dementia. So socialising, so important. You can never predict what's going to happen in a social situation. So it keeps your brain on its toes. It keeps you sharp. Socialising, so important. Learning, learning the other thing that's really, really important to keep your brain plugging along. Make sure you are doing something that's always kind of teaching you or learning for you in some way. And that doesn't mean you have to do rocket science or brain surgery. It doesn't mean that, you know, you've got to do the uber, uber hard Sudoku. It just means something that is stimulating your brain to learn a new thing. And that might be learning a new game, you know, learning a new board game with your family or your friends, learning to play bridge, learning to salsa, learn, dabbling a little bit in learning how to watercolour, learning a language, getting Duolingo and learning a bit of a language. Or if you can, put the two together and get into a social group where you're all learning a new skill together. You're all learning to pot, do pottery or to, um, I don't know, write a book. Something where you're socialising and you're learning is the number one protective factor for keeping your brain smart and keeping your brain on the ball. And I think when you think about ageing, those are the things that we tend to give up. We stop going to school and we stop socialising, we become homebodies. So those are the things you want to try to avoid. One of the aspects of poor mental health I keep reading about is this level of anxiety that people are experiencing, getting quite anxious and overwhelmed. What's the best way to deal with anxiety when you feel it coming on and how should you manage yourself through it? Firstly, you're so not alone. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling that overwhelming dread in your body, waking up in the middle of the night with the like the, the to-do list in your head of all the things you need to do and all the worries of, oh, if I don't get this done, then that will happen. And your brain is ruminating, thinking again and over and over and over on these topics. You are so not alone. You're so not alone. That's really common. And we know in Australia, one in six women are experiencing depression and one in three experience anxiety in their lifetime. So it's so, so common. The best ways we can deal with things like anxiety and and maybe even depression is to get to the bottom of why they're occurring. Often we have, you know, core beliefs, which is your, like your programming of how you are programmed to view the world, which might be something beautiful, like the world is a beautiful place with lots of people who want to help me. Or maybe you have a core belief like the rest of us, which is something like, I'm not good enough or I'm unlovable because the way that you've been raised or the way that you've been treated for a very long time has taught you from the people around you that nothing you did was good enough and that you needed to always work really, really hard and that all of your efforts went unnoticed because those people around you perhaps had their own mental health issues and they've fostered this core belief within you where you have very low self-worth. So often there is a underlying core belief that is like brainwashing. It's like you have been brainwashed or you're programming like a computer. You've been given a virus that's infected your programming and the virus is telling your programming, your coding, not good enough, not good enough. And that's how I'm going to interpret everything that happens to me in life as evidence that I'm not good enough and that I'm unlovable. So I have to bend over backwards for everyone. I have to 
self-sacrifice and be the helper and go above and beyond in everything I do and run myself into the ground into absolute burnout because I'm terrified that my family or my friends are going to tell me that they don't love me and they're going to abandon me. So getting to the bottom of those core beliefs, uh, de-infecting your programming. You know, we want to clean, we want to put some better hardware in your programming, grow some new core beliefs that you are lovable, that you are amazing, that you are a good, kind person who deserves love and kindness and respect, especially from yourself. Hannah, what I find fascinating is you're someone that, you know, is an expert in all things to do with the brain. And yet you've been quite honest about your own personal journey and your own vulnerabilities. Do you want to share with us some of those? And how confronting was that for you as a neuropsychologist, professionally and personally? Yeah, I did some posts for Are You OK Day. And I came out and said, you know, look, I'm, I'm not OK and I wasn't OK. And one of the things that I needed to do to help me to be OK was go to my psychologist, work out what my core beliefs were do my mindfulness and meditation, but also I need to take anti-anxiety medication and I've been taking it for um, over a year now. And I think that, that little post went a little viral for my account because it's so rare, I think, to hear a psychologist uh, or a mental health professional step up and say, I actually have mental health issues and I need help with it to get, get on top of it and to turn off my biological hardwiring that pumps me full of adrenaline. And it was a little scary for me to put that out publicly and say, you know, this is something that affects me too and to the point that I, I need medication to help. I bet. I think in society we still have a stigma when, when we say, you know, if somebody says, is, admits I see a psychologist or I get medication to help with my mental health, there is still a stigma associated with that, that in some way that makes you weak or even just the name mental health. I have mental health issues and the word mental you know, that word, are you mental because you have mental health issues? It's such a stigma, isn't there? It is. And, and I think that's why we need people who are, you know, perhaps examples in the field to say, I have these issues. Not just if you're not okay, you should get help, but actually say, I wasn't okay and I got help and it actually worked. And, and removing this stigma of there's something wrong with you if you have a mental health issue because everyone seems to hide it, but we're all in the same boat. Nobody, nobody is above mental health issues. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a psychologist, a journalist, nobody is above mental health issues. Well, Hannah Coral, thank you so much for helping us navigate our way through it. I don't think there's an easier path ahead, but it certainly helps to get some tips from the expert. We've really enjoyed your time with us here at Short Black. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.